Hello and welcome back to Redirected. My name is Andrew East and this is a show where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, really anybody who has experienced a change or pivot in life. I call these changes redirections and at some point or another we all go through them. My story is going from studying engineering in college to playing in the NFL to failing to play in the NFL to now doing digital media full time. So I wanted to hear from people who have made it through these changes well so that I could glean some wisdom from them and share that wisdom with you. Uh, I hope to do that in a way that's entertaining and also educational, maybe a little bit inspirational as well. So thank you for tuning in. Before we get started, if you could press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to, uh, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, whatever it is, uh, and give the show a rating. I would love to hear your feedback and things you think I'm doing well, things you think I'm doing poorly. Today we sit down with a special guest, Manu Adakara. And Manu is the program director of the iVenture Accelerator Program at the University of Illinois. Uh, he's the youngest ever to be in a role like that at the University of Illinois. And he's one of the best speakers that I've had the pleasure of speaking with. He shares some incredible insight on what he's learned from being the son of immigrants to being homeless and then ultimately finding his way into the entrepreneurship space. And he talks with us about what he's gleaned from these different founders and entrepreneurs and investors. And so I'm thankful Manu could share his wisdom with us. I hope you enjoy the show. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the show or given a rating, please do so now. And let's just go ahead and roll into it with Manu at a car. Manu, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to meet you. It is a real pleasure to meet you today on November 4th. <laughs> Out of all days, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good distraction from everything going on. But you were just telling me you met my wife at some point? I'm curious. I did. So I, again, I'm not like a crazy athlete or anything, but I used to do gymnastics in high school. So I always had an uh, interest in the sport. And she actually spoke at the University of Illinois when I was here in undergrad. So we got a chance to see her and that was really cool. And now, you know, what is it? Five years later, I'm talking to you, which is kind of really neat. <laughs> yeah. Who's taller, you or Sean? I'm curious. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not the tallest guy in the room, but I think I might have a couple inches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I got to ask. So I was looking at uh, your videos that you've posted on in the manuscript, manuscript, I guess is how you might pronounce it, on your YouTube channel. I saw you did the Murph challenge. Yes. The CrossFit workout, I'm where so it's for those listening who haven't done the Murph. It's run a mile, hundred pull ups, two hundred push ups, three hundred air squats, run another mile. If you're up for it, wear a twenty pound vest through the whole thing. How was your experience, Manu? So I, I did it. It's a tradition in the CrossFit community to do it on Memorial Day to honor Lieutenant Murph, who you yeah. know uh, passed away in action, and I, I believe in Afghanistan. But uh, it was actually precipitated by. COVID. So since the gym is closed, I was just trying new things and CrossFit workouts really kind of interested me. So my experience was, um, I think I tweaked my back and puked in the middle of it. It's very <laughs> challenging. It's much more challenging than just, you know, banging out some heavy reps on squats and stuff. But I loved it. I loved it. It challenged me. And now I'm kind of doing more CrossFit kind of oriented workouts in my routine. So my first time doing Murph, and I think it might've been my first CrossFit workout. I come from a Olympic lifting background with football. And it was a week before I had a tryout with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I did Murph. And so I'd never, I hadn't done a pull up in who knows how long. And I haven't done a hundred pull ups ever. So I did, a, I did a hundred pull ups. And during the workout, I felt my elbows start to like get real tight. Like, 
and anyway, like I finished the workout and I felt great. And then the next day we had to go to a wedding and I put my suit on and I could not extend my elbows. Like they were locked up. Like I had T-Rex arms. So I was walking around this wedding. Anyway, I go to the Jacksonville Jaguars workout to try to make the team. And needless to say, I did not perform great because my, in my position, you need to have full flexion and range of mobility. And I did not. So I have uh, deep scars with Murph. <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a tangent. Manu, I would love to hear, I always think it's so interesting to hear about people's backgrounds, the foundation of where they came from. I would love to hear kind of your autobiography of, of how you've gotten to this point today. Sure. And, and thanks, Andrew. And I just want to give you a huge shout out for putting together the show. Uh, I think it's really impactful. And uh, at least from the folks that I've listened to, it's, it's really, it is inspirational to hear from folks. So props to you, man. Um, but a quick snapshot on mine, and then maybe we can delve on different points. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Indian. My parents were immigrants. They moved to the sunny state of California. That's where I was raised. And I had a golden childhood in the golden state. Uh, we ended up moving to Illinois, which is where I finished my schooling and I did my undergrad here. So I went to the University of Illinois. And again, as I mentioned, my parents were traditional Indians. So you have two options, kind of. You're either an engineer or a doctor. I guess that you have a third option, which is you're a failure. But pick one. <laughs> so uh, I actually entered college studying political science uh, in Army ROTC with the, a serious intent on joining kind of global policy, foreign policy. I just wrapped up an internship that it took me across all the major points of DC. So the Pentagon, the White House, uh, meeting different ambassadors and stuff. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And then I got this pressure to choose a new career. So I, I was like, okay, you know what? I like to work out. Maybe health and fitness has something for me. I'll try this medical path. So my entire undergrad was focused on medicine. So calculus, really fun classes like anatomy and chemistry, which killed my GPA. So I spent four years doing that. And uh, if you look at my background in undergrad, I was uh, a competitive bodybuilder. I was an EMT, I was a personal trainer, and I did volunteer work with special populations, uh, people with severe mental disabilities. And I, I actually even trained the wheelchair basketball team. So I, I got to train some Paralympians here. Wow. And it was a lot of fun, really impactful. And I think that's carried over today because a big part of what I do today is dealing with people and diverse populations. But as soon as I graduated, man, um, I knew my heart was not set on medicine. So there's a lot of reasons that medicine is really tough. It takes a long time. They have three times average suicide rate, I think, higher rates of depression, medical malpractice is a real thing. And it's fairly rigid in terms of a career. And I really value flexibility and freedom. So it was a tough time because all my friends were going on to great careers. If you go to a good school, you know, everyone's going to big tech, uh, consulting, law school, or, and, and several going to med school. And I was just like, I kind of have a worthless degree here. Mm. <laughs> Pre-medicine, what do I do? So I did what any studious Indian boy would do. I ran away from home and I traveled <laughs> the world for six months, actually. <laughs> and during those six months, I got to travel to areas like Kuwait, India, Mexico, I guess Canada doesn't really count, but I got to go around the world, didn't get to speak that much English, didn't have much electronics on me, and I got to read and think about what I wanted to do. And I think this is a really important thing for a lot of folks to do, it's just like shut yourself off from the world, because here in America, there's a routine, right? It's nine to five, we're rushing every day to finish our work, living for the weekends. We have you know routines of coming home, make dinner, watch Netflix, I think it's very important to expose yourself to different ways of living. And so when I went to other countries, it's like, wow, the pace of life, 
the things that people are concerned about, the problems they have are really different and interesting. And that's when I came to this epiphany, which was as a physician, as an EMT, I could impact one life at a time, which is really important. But I think with technology and entrepreneurship, uh, you have the potential to impact a lot more people simultaneously. And so I used the last of my money. So I had saved up some money from personal training. I used the last of it to fly a one way to San Francisco. And I'm, I told you, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm not really good at math. Average rent in San Francisco is like three grand. I had like a grand in my pocket. So I came in and that kind of started my, I guess, homeless journey. So I was uh, sleeping at the airport. I jumped from building to building. I, I eventually ended up in a startup incubator. I'm not going to name the name, but I would sneak into the building at night with another buddy I met who was also homeless and had aspirations of becoming an entrepreneur. And we'd sneak into there, we'd sleep after the employees left, we'd leave before the employees came in the morning and we'd kind of shower at the gym and go and network with as many Silicon Valley folks as possible. And it's through that, that I started this entrepreneurial journey where I started learning design, front end programming, internet marketing, sales, and dealing with people and really just you know pushing forward, which allowed me to build the base from which I moved to Chicago, uh, met a couple other U of I grads and started building companies. So I co-founded three different startups. One was in the on-demand space, one was in the social media advertising space, and one was kind of a design firm. And the last one did fairly well. And after that, the university reached out to me and I was like, oh, wow, all this stuff that I ignored when I was on campus, it's actually really promising right now. They had a vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem. And one of those things was the iVenture Accelerator. And iVenture is a startup accelerator. So startups are nascent companies. They're early stage ideas that are looking to become a business. And they were looking for someone to lead it. I applied and that's what I do right now. So iVenture is an educational program for top student startups here at the University of Illinois. And we've been around for five years and, and I'm happy to dive into some of the stats there, but I know I threw a lot out at you and I want to give you a chance. <laughs> no, it's so good. And I, I would love to talk about iVenture. I think, I think you, you bridged us here. Well, um, you talked about kind of this concept of changing the world and you could do so in the medical profession, but maybe even more so in the technology and entrepreneurial. And I would love to hear as you look at these startups, um, as you deal with these entrepreneurs, talk about the purpose and the, the, the meaning of purpose, the building of purpose that you're able to do and that you've seen through your work? Definitely. So that's an excellent question. And one of the things to understand about entrepreneurship, it's, it's such a visceral experience. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs identity, their personal identity is tied to their, to their company. They believe strongly in what they're building and that shows through in their work. Yeah. So the cool thing about business is yes, business is about making money, but at the core of business of successful business, a business is about helping people. You got to solve someone's problem enough to the point where they pay you. Mm-hmm. So with the iVenture Accelerator, it is a program within Geese College Business here at the University of Illinois. So our mission at Geese is actually business through purpose. So we're not really worried about going into business. We're more interested in what actually drives your why. What is your why? In fact, in iVenture, the very first exercise after we select all these ambitious student entrepreneurs who, by the way, have raised millions and created dozens of full-time jobs. On day one, the first exercise we do is why do you do what you do? Hmm. 
because we want to know what drives them day to day. And that makes it easier for us to coach them. Okay, look, this is a vehicle to get you from this career to this career. Oh, no, you want to solve this problem for this demographic? Or no, you know what? You have a personal tie to this med device that you're building. Does someone in your family suffered from this? Cool. That's really great. Let's work on uh, magnifying that impact. So it, it's ingrained from day one. And that's what I think makes us different is because most accelerators actually take equity. So usually when someone invests in your company, they take a portion of what you own. We don't. We're equity free. So we give up to, I think, $300,000 worth in resources and financing to different teams. And our core focus is on developing the individual first. And that's why the purpose thing is very important to us. I've recently been crushing through Simon Sinek's books. One of them is Start With Why, another The Infinite, Infinite Game. And I think the way he describes the the benefit of having a strong why behind your company or really anything you're doing, whatever organization, without it, it's a shell. You know, th there's nothing really great that can happen if you don't have you know, a worthy cause behind you. Um, but I would, on, on the note of books, another one I read was Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of your companies, I believe, was in Tony Shea's uh, accelerator program or incubator program, whatever, whatever the two. Uh, Tony Shea is the co-founder of Zappos, maybe not founder, but he's the current CEO of, of Zappos. And his why, this book, Delivering Happiness, that he wrote, is it's all about everything that they do at Zappos, whether it's customer service or their fulfillment or any of the logistical things too, which aren't even customer focus, is all about giving the customer like one positive interaction at a time, building happiness within them. So um, I would love to hear which of the startups that you've worked with um, has taught you the most, Manu? <laughs> that's, that's a tough question, man. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think you made an interesting point about uh, those two books, and those are fantastic authors, by the way, in the space. And I, I, I think it really pays dividends to, to really analyze your why in terms of like your day-to-day -to -day too. So like everything that you do should have purpose. So I also mentioned I'm a competitive bodybuilder, like it, it, everything in terms of eating, sleeping, your your schedules, uh, the, the, the startups that you're an advisor for, the classes that you teach, like everything should have a purpose. Like for, for me, a lot of times I was told no. And like now I'm in a position where I can tell young people who are often told no, like your dream is too wild, it's too ambitious. I can, I get to tell them, no, let's try it out. So that's important. Um, in terms of how I've learned from them, Whew. it's really tough. It's really tough. So every year I get anywhere from 11 to 15 different companies to work with. They can be anything from a nonprofit educating young women through STEM. They can be med devices that are screening for oral cancer in rural India. They can be apps that teach people to play the violin. Like it's, it's all over the board. So here's the issue. There is no way I can be an expert in any of those industries. Right. Zero chance. So I'm actually not the expert in the room in terms of like their industry or what they should do exactly with like their specific target customer base. Mm. So all of these teams challenge me. I think it's really hard for me to pick one because each year I think each industry challenges me. 
Um, I will say this though, from the student side, there have been several students that I get to work with, young entrepreneurs that have completely challenged my way of leadership, my management style, and the way I interact with people. So I've been working here for three years. Uh, if you talk to students my first year, they would admit that I was a terror. <laughs> I was just stone-faced. That was my leadership style. Let's, I'm cutthroat. We need to get things done. All business, no plan. The second year, I, I loosened it up maybe a tad too much, and I was wearing colorful suits. I was a guy with you know green suits, pink suits, purple suits, red suits on campus, and students got very close to me. And I think this third year, kind of, I've, I've gotten into a real neat stride where I'm blending some things that I've hidden from students before, such as my extracurriculars, my athletic kind of interests, and like who I am professionally. And I think that's been really cool because I'm discovering my why and being more true to myself as well. And I think that's where students have really challenged and improved and enhanced my professional career. Why do you do what you do, Manu? Great question, Andrew. <laughs> and I'm curious, um, I'm curious what, you, what you think about this, but throughout my entire life, <clears throat> I think I mentioned it's always been no. So you're, you, you don't come from an affluent family. So when we look at entrepreneurship, for example, most successful entrepreneurs are highly educated, affluent, heterosexual men who have the ability to, white men, who have the ability to take risk. When you look at where the money in, in entrepreneurship is actually trickling down, like from investors, I think 2% goes to female founders and people of color. Okay. Mm. So with my background, I was not engineering or business. So I was, as pre-med, uh, I did not come from an affluent background. I was told several times, no, uh, my parents were really upset about me pursuing the entrepreneurial path because you know what being an entrepreneur means when you start, it means you have no salary. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what it means. You're not bringing home the bread. So I think it's really important at those times, especially when I was in San Francisco, which was really difficult for me. Like all I had, man, was a backpack. I was wandering around San Francisco. And I didn't know how cold it would get in San Francisco because I'd be sleeping on top of buildings and it was, it was not fun. I thought it was California and be warm, but it wasn't. Um, I think in those deep moments when you're really up against the world and there's no one behind you, I think it's important to dig down and think about why you want to do what you want to do. And for me, the only reason I didn't decide to switch careers or take something up was because I knew one day I'd be in a position where I can use my experiences to help motivate others, especially young people, to pursue what they really want to do. And that's why I do what I want to do. It's to help the dreamers who are often told no to continue pursuing their dreams. Manu, your parents, you mentioned the Indian background and there's three things you can do, either be an engineer, a doctor, or a failure. <laughs> Did do you experience much resistance from them as you were on this exploration to where you are now? Yes. So I, 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 I think it, it was a journey. So I think immigrant parents from all different backgrounds have their own preconceptions about what to do. And it's all based on like, hopefully doing what is right for their children. Like there's a reason my parents came here. It's, to, it's for a better life. Right. And so throughout my childhood, I had the best support of childhood. So no video games. It was just like, here's books and you can go mm -hmm. exercise. You can do, my dad was a martial artist. So it's like exercise and books. And that's all I did. So I was reading really, really engaging stuff like, you know, Plato and Shakespeare when I was a kid. My parents were like, here, read this. No TV, no video games. 
Um, as you can tell, I was probably not the most popular kid in high school. <laughs> um, but once I got to college, again, it was, it was support. But I think post-college, the other part of the story is they were looking to me to become the breadwinner. And there was no money coming in, right? And I think that's where the friction started. And companies, at least software companies, take an average about three to five years to do something meaningful. So I made a huge mistake. I should have started in college. I did the worst thing possible, which is starting at post-college. When you don't have any you know, financial support, when you're not able to use school resources, like it was a very disadvantageous time. And when you're working for a year or two years with literally nothing to show for it, you're hopping from friend's house to friend's house, especially in a community that values professional success, you become an outlier and kind of like this black sheep. Oh, what is Manu doing? He went to college and now he's not doing anything. And so there's a lot of shame, I think, involved with that. And that's where I think you can make two decisions. You know, you can, you can adapt to what society thinks about you, or you can find a way to persevere and, and really find what makes you happy. Cause that's the most important thing. I don't think it's just my parents. I think a lot of traditional immigrant families will have certain views on religion, on who you should marry, what time you should get married, et cetera, what career you should choose. And as soon as I showed them, I could be successful. I think I'm the youngest director on this campus. And I also got named, I, I've gotten some awards and stuff. As soon as I got into this position, they were my biggest cheerleaders and they still are. Uh, my dad and mom text me all the time. They live in India right now, but there's literally nothing I can do wrong with right now with them. So we have a group chat with me and my brothers and it's radio sounds from my brothers, but I'll post anything in there. My, my parents will be always be like, God bless. <laughs> Great job. Son. Keep it up. <laughs> It'll be like a picture of me like working out or something. My mom's like, God bless you, son. So I think that the thing to take away from there is you gain respect by not backing down. Uh, I had a vision for myself and I didn't let anyone, including my closest supporters, like I love my parents dearly, detract me from that. And now they're my biggest supporters. So, hmm. yeah. I love that so much. And that's per- the idea of perseverance and resilience is my story as well. Uh, whether you achieve your dream in a one-year period, a five-year period, however long it takes you, if you're pers- if you're persevering towards that dream and you're relentlessly pursuing it, like me, it took me five years to play in an NFL game, which is my lifelong dream, right? There were so many things that happened because I stayed on that path. And there are definitely, you know, if, if there's a lot of red flags of you pursuing this goal that it's not good for you in whatever way, then certainly don't continue pursuing it. But for me, there was, it was literally just my decision as to whether I was going to continue trying to play in the NFL. And as a result of me doing that, not only did I finally achieve that goal, but there's a thousand other things that happened that benefited me. There's so many people that I met. We started our digital media because of that. Uh, I just think that perseverance is, you know, very difficult to continue doing something when you're not having that immediate success and you can go get a steady paycheck somewhere else. But it's a super key concept that you're touching on there. Um, I would love transitioning from parents. You mentioned what you've learned from these founders and entrepreneurs that you're around on a day-to-day basis. I know you're part of a couple mentor programs uh, or a mentor program. 
I would love to get your thoughts on the importance of mentorship or at the very least this supportive community to have around you. Yeah, definitely, man. And I think this is actually tied into the, the journey piece, the perseverance piece that you just kind of elaborated on. So I think it's a very simple philosophy for me in life. It's just happiness. Like I, I chased a lot of things before, popularity, muscles, career accolades, but right now it's just about being happy. Dress the way you want to dress, eat the way you want to eat, hang out with the people, uh, do things that you want to do. Because it, as anyone in the medical field can tell you, life is precious and life is short. We all need to look at history to look at that. I, I think sometimes I'm mind boggled when I look at history. I'm like, that happened so long ago, but we're reading about it. And I think that ties into mentorship and the journey. So one of the coolest things I think in terms of learning is finding people who are experts and just listening from them. Because talking to you right now, like I'm already picking up things. Talking to a person that's a historian, you'll learn a lot of things. Talking to a person who started a successful business, you'll learn a lot of things. Because they have done the thing, they failed. You know, you don't get to any kind of success without actually failing and they've established themselves. And I think that's one of the, cre the most creative, easiest hacks to learn is just to learn and find mentors. So one of the nonprofits that I was involved in creating is called Black Boy Shine. And Essentially, what we do is around the University of Illinois community, there's a lot of underprivileged neighborhoods. And the majority of the young men there are uh, Latino or African-American. And a lot of them actually lack father figures. So lack of male role model in your childhood is directly linked to higher risks of pregnancy, SDIs, gang violence, drug abuse. So we just started a simple mentorship program where me and my boys, again, this is in college, we just identify some kids at the local Donmar and boy, boys club, and we sit down and chat with them and talk to them about issues that they face in their lives. And that's it. And promising students, we would teach them things such as dinner etiquette, you know, very simple things, talking about the college application process, giving them access to scholarships. And I think that's been a great stepping point for almost every other kind of mentorship that goes on right now. I'm currently involved with Illinois Promise. It's a scholarship given to students from underprivileged backgrounds that are high achievers academically. And it's the same thing, because I think there's two ways to kind of mentor. One is just like, you tell people things. And I think the more fun part of mentoring is when you listen to them and you work with them and you realize that there's a lot more common ground and you get to build things and you realize that a lot of them, a lot of these kids that I get to work with, they're not that much younger than me. Uh, some of them are actually older than me, you know, they're, they're actually in the MBA programs and stuff. And it's just, we have a lot of similar fears and, and dreams, and we have a lot of common ground. So I, I think uh, mentorship is, is absolutely critical. And in fact, for me, I have, you know, everyone has, you know, people that they call, I have a personal, I call it my board of advisors. And I can turn to any one of them on like any topic that I want, whether it's fitness, whether it's business, whether it's legal stuff, I have someone I know I can call to give me advice on stuff. And I think that's really important in life. You kind of slid that in there, the personal board of advisors. So how did you construct that? So that's a great question. And I, I think there's a couple things. So I'm a firm believer that you can usually gauge how well you're going to get along with someone fairly early on. Chemistry is, is something really real and you, you get there. You think you and I get along? <laughs> we started laughing. <laughs> Not even committed into the conversation. Maybe. I'm kidding. Yeah. I cut uh, you off though. Continue. Um, but 
I, I think uh, chemistry is a real thing, but in terms of you, you asked with this personal board of advisors, like how do we set it up? I think it's dependent on like what things are important to you. So for example, like I meet people every day and my, my day is filled with meetings with people, whether there's politicians, entrepreneurs, investors, it's just, it's talking to a bunch of people and you always have to have your a game on and no one ever loses respect until they have a reason to. I think chemistry and like understanding what people can bring to the table is what really builds like a personal board of advisors. So I, I think I mentioned earlier that I'm not at all the expert when I'm mentoring all these students and I'm definitely not an expert in a lot of things in life. I'll, I'll just be honest. Like, it's just like, I'm, I'm a student. I'm always learning. Mm. So when you talk to enough people, I've actually built a personal kind of list. I just keep notes on everyone that I meet. I'm like, okay, I met this person, blah, 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 blah. If I follow up, I'll be like, blah, blah, blah. And as soon, you know, you look over those things periodically, like with my goals, I look at these almost every day. You'll find the people that you're in touch with frequently. And maybe they're not the smartest person in the world. Maybe they don't have any great accolades, but maybe they're the right person to call when you're going through something traumatic. That gets them a seat on the board of advisors. Now they don't know they're on the board of advisors. I just use that as a term to yeah. kind of categorize them. That's so good. We talked earlier about how careers evolve and yours certainly has, mine certainly has. I'd love to talk on a micro scale, your, your perspective on the importance of that, but then also you hinted earlier at kind of the, the industry trends of some jobs will be phased out, new ones will come. Um, walk us down that path. Yes, so great point, and I, I think this is one of the coolest things about this whole series for you. I think this is really important stuff for people to learn about, and I'm, I'm glad that you're advocating it and, and, and interviewing people that are changing careers. There's a theory that's called, I think it's called the Red Queen Hypothesis. So it's, it's basically when, when creatures are around, it's not the strongest or the smartest that survives, it's the one most adaptable to change. Mm. Yeah. And I think adaptability is one of the key career skills that is not being really taught and is really important because the way software technology is progressing, like just, it, it's crazy. Less than a decade ago, who knew about Bitcoin? Who knew about Uber? Who knew about Airbnb? Like all these things are revolutionizing our, our world. They're just everyday things now. What's the next 10 years gonna bring? Things are growing exponentially now. They're not just going a straight curve. So I think it pays to be adaptable. And I think we don't live in a world where it's just like, oh, I went to college, I got good grades, I got a job, I work at the same company, I retire and get my paycheck. That's just not how things work. And it's probably not the best way to make you happy either. So I, I think what we're seeing is a growing trend of people with multiple interests, multiple careers. You have the ability with the internet today to learn whatever you want. So you can do everything, you just can't do, I'm sorry, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the rise of like, I think Peloton has a cycle instructor who used to be a former lawyer, corporate lawyer, I think his name is Robin. Um, there's, you know, the yogi who started the meditation app Headspace, which is a unicorn valid at a, uh, a billion dollars. Like we're seeing these crisscross. And I think the second part of that is something called the Medici effect, which is, so there's a family in Renaissance Italy called the Medicis who are involved with the Renaissance. They're big patrons of the arts. And the whole concept of this book is the intersection of different disciplines is what breeds innovation. So I want to see more crazy careers and crazy. Preach. Yeah. Like that is that that's like what's so cool about iVenture is because like 
it's not just business students, it's engineering, it's medicine, it's people from design, they're all under the same roof. And when you bring smart people from different corners and different disciplines and different perspectives that don't get along in the same room, that's like innovation, that's true community, that's like the human spirit. So that, I think that's really important. On the macro scale, when we look at the trends, it, it pays to be adaptable because I, I told you, I started a couple software companies, again, maybe four or five years ago. My skills are completely obsolete now, man. There's no way I can compete with any student that's studied computer science. No way. They grew up with smartphones. There's zero way. Um, that's not how I differentiate myself right now. I differentiate myself be, being adaptable and focusing on skills. So the uh, humanities, for example, they get a bad rap. It's like, oh, why study psychology? Why study literature? My hypothesis is as more and more technology gets automated, the soft skills per se, like talking with people, building camaraderie, decision-making, those skills actually become really, really valuable. And I think we're going to see a, hopefully a shift where people start preparing where it's just like, for example, like if there are autonomous vehicles on the roads, which seems like a fantasy now, but I've seen the headquarters of companies like Uber and Lyft where they're building these kind of vehicles, that's going to put millions of Americans out of business. So like, where do those people go? And who supports those people? I think uh, I think that's like kind of the big shift that you can see in the next couple decades, which people need to be prepared for. So, in essence, I think evolution and adaptability to change is absolutely integral for those preparing for work in the twenty first century. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to touch on the Medici effect. I always thought it was. I don't know how you say their last name. We got to go to Florence. My wife and I did Florence, Italy, and see. I think it was their their home compound and all of the, the the museums that they've you know patroned so many of these sculptors and painters to do works for anyway i love the idea that it's the blending of careers that creates innovation and this is where sean and i disagree quite a bit actually on on innovation where whether it's a concept for a video or a company idea whatever it is she adamantly um holds true to the idea that it, if someone else has done anything close to what this new idea is then it's like a complete copycat and we can't do it but i i think the innovation most realistically and maybe best happens when it is a deviation of something that already exists right and it's a it's more of a a derivative of hey here's a bike and here's a TV screen. Let's blend the two. And now we have a Peloton, you know? <laughs> so it's, I, I think that we're on the same page there and it's uh, really important because I, I do think there's some discouragement and Sean feels it of, Oh, I thought this was a great idea, but someone's already doing something close to it. So I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even begin to, you know, walk down the path of researching this idea and meeting people, reaching out to people. And it, it kind of, you get stopped dead in your tracks, which sometimes is good and, and is merited, but a lot of times it's just, you know, an unnecessary end to an idea. Right. Um, you know what they say, good artists create, great artists steal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's actually something we, we teach our entrepreneurs. It's just like, okay, you have this idea. I see thousands of pitches every year. It's like, cool, this is a great idea. Who else is doing it? How are they doing it better? And what's mm. your what's your stick? Just because something is done doesn't mean that it can't be done better. Google, yes. for example, I think was not the first search engine. I think it was the 17th search engine. 
Wow. So it's just like things will always be innovative and always, you know, Tinder was just the first dating app. Now there's like every demographic possible in terms of dating apps, right? Yeah. Um, it's just, there are always needs that are unmet. And I think the internet is making that really, really apparent. Just because there's Uber in America doesn't mean that there's something similar in China. We're seeing yeah. a lot of this kind of copycat innovation in the rest of the world. So I think there's huge opportunity there to see what's already working, glean some insights from that, and make it in your own image. Yeah, so true. Mino, you've accomplished so much. You've done so much. You've been involved with so much. When you look back on what's gotten you to where you are today, what are three lessons that you've learned? Maybe someone shared them with you that you could share with us. So thank you for that nice compliment. Um, I, I, I hope there's more to achieve and I, I feel like a junior in a lot of ways and it's great to chat with you. But I think three things that are really important is one, I, I didn't realize how important happiness was early on. I was, I was not happy because I was like, at, at U of I, U of I is a huge party school. I think in 2015, the year I left, Princeton Review named it like the top party school and I was like, cool. Like I was not, I was, I, I was trying to be popular with bodybuilding. Like it's, it's very subjective. Like the judges, like they like certain poses, they like certain muscles and like you can win or lose a show on that. With society, they have certain expectations on how you should do your career and what is normal and what will get you the right money and a good life. Everyone always has an opinion. The most important relationship in life is with yourself. Everything else is a plus, but not a must. So I think that's number one. It just, you gotta be happy with yourself. And like, I'm really happy. I know this is a terrible time for the world and a lot of people are suffering, but I'm still finding a lot of happiness and value out of every day. And that's really important to me. So that's number one. And I think that's often overlooked. I think number two is I spend a lot of time alone actually. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I spend a lot of time reading and I think just the ability to read is very important, but the ability to note take is also very important. So I think there is, you know, there's, there's a bunch of gurus that are like, I read 50 books a year. That's cool. How much of that did you retain? You know? So, so for me, like I have very simple rule with books. It's just like, if you like it, read it. If you don't on to the next one, I think sometimes school takes a fun amount of education because you're forced to read things. Um, but I think reading just, it, it's just compound. It compounds on itself and you'll automatically start building connections and things like who would have thought we'd be talking about Renaissance Italy in this conversation, man. Mm -hmm. But the more things you have, the more things you're able to draw from. And I think the third thing that I'd like to point out is this is kind of tied into happiness is it is crazy how fast time passes. And I think we scheduled this like maybe a month ago and it's, it, yeah. I was like, this is going to be so far away. I got plenty of time to prepare. <laughs> it came like this, man. Yeah. I looked up the morning, it's on the schedule. Time passes so quickly. Like we can just look at history. So I think the most important thing is just like, you should try, I, I think Steve Jobs put it best. It was in his speech, I think a commencement address at, at Stanford. It's just like, if you wake up too many days in a row and you don't love what you do, you should reassess something along those lines. The only way to, to uh, do great work is to love what you do. And I think that's really important. So just, I think you should really live every day like it's your last. It, it could be, because if you look at statistics, like, you know, look at books like by Malcolm Gladwell and stuff, and you look at statistics, people die in car crashes. People die because of diseases. People die because of accidents. 
So like, it, it, it's kind of scary, but I think sometimes the fear of death can be a powerful motivator to live. And I think that's the last part. It's just like, you really got to take the most out of every day. And that doesn't mean you need to like, be like crazy productive and stuff. It just means like, oh, okay. Like today's a day and I'm going to try to tackle it the best way possible. And I think that's really, that's been really important to me. Whether I was, you know, sleeping on a building in San Francisco or giving big speeches here, like it's, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, this is cool. Like when I look back at that time, man, like I don't, like people often ask me, what would you do differently? Nothing. That was super fun. <laughs> yeah. It's super fun. And now this is really fun too. And what's happening next, next I'm really excited about too. So. What are you most proud of, material or otherwise? That's a that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> I am proud of two things. So my parents, the reason I joined entrepreneurship was so we come from a family below the poverty line. So I knew that a normal career, quote unquote, wasn't gonna do much. I need to think outside the box. If you want to become wealthy, you do it by starting a business. I think mo the majority of Fortune 500 CEOs, the majority of billionaires are actually self-made, which is crazy. There's a great opportunity right now because of the power of the internet to do what you want to do. So I'm really, really proud of the fact that I'm in a position now from where I came from to be able to provide for my parents. And I have two brothers, they live with me. I, I, I'm taking care of like their living stuff. And I'm, I'm very proud of that because I it, 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 is, it is important to me, you know, and again, this this is, again, values that we've learned in the Bible and stuff to be able to provide. So that's number one. I think number two is impact. This job is really tough. I'm technically a government employee. There's, you know, everyone says, oh, it's 40 hours a week. But quickly, if you care about your work, it'll be more than that. You know, if there's 30 to 60 students to take care of. It's not just company stuff. You know, people are like, I'm, I'm dealing with this personally, even especially now, right? Everyone's dealing with mental health and Zoom fatigue and all these issues. So when you really care about your work, you'll have to put in serious work and it's draining. And I think what I'm really proud of is a lot, every summer I get burnt out when we're running an accelerator. It just happens, you know, mm. every human has a breaking point. What I'm most proud of is when students come back or people come back and they're like, hey, I got this job, I did this, or you impacted me in this way. And I think that's really important. So when you look at uh, what brings fulfillment in life, I think there's, you know, taking care of your physical health, your mental health, your social health, having a good career, not worrying about, you know, your financial health. But I think once you have checked off a lot of those bo boxes, one of the coolest things is giving back. And that gives you a sense of satisfaction. I think it's been documented in research that is kind of unparalleled. And that's what I'm really proud of, just being in a position where I can be like, you know what, man, it's going to be okay. I believe in you. We're going to take a chance on this. Or when people come back and they talk to me, I think that's been really cool. Wow. I do. When I look at people who are 30 years, 40 years ahead of me in their career or life, it does seem like they all kind of follow a similar tra trajectory where it's, you go from a learning phase in high school, college, your first couple of years of your career to a building phase where you start getting promotions to the leading phase where, you know, you're in management or whatever other position where you have a team to then ultimately it, it seems like it always ends with teaching and giving back in that way. Uh, and so how can, how can I teach or give back right now in, in this phase? Because ultimately it seems like that's the, the most fulfilling thing when people get to an age old enough to appreciate it. But 
Definitely. Uh, you, you, go ahead. One, one point to tie that into what we talked about earlier is you asked me what uh, the purpose is and why do I do what you do? And we also touched on the changing nature of jobs and how to prepare for careers when we're faced with such big threats. So the, the point that I want to make to tie this all in together is this century, I, I know it sounds slightly outlandish, but artificial intelligence is proliferating at a rate that we don't really understand. Climate change is becoming a huge issue. The threat of bio risks like COVID is, is very real. Our threats are bigger than ever before. And so as an educator, it's it's a civic duty, I think, to help prepare the next generation to deal with this world that's that we're leaving them. I think the, the last point to tie this in is I think there was a Roman statesman named Cincinnatus. I think that's what his name was. And this is in, during the Republic before uh, Caesar took power. And so during the Republic, they the Senate could actually hire or motion for a dictator. So I think there was a barbarian tribe that invaded Rome and all the Romans are freaked out. So the Senate's like, let's elect a dictator. And they're like, Cincinnatus, this farmer, he's a good, solid guy. He should be the dictator to run our, our, be our general and run the army. So he runs the army, beats the barbarians, and then he comes back to Rome and everyone's like, be our king, be our king. And he said, no. And he went back to his farm and he continued farming. That is an example of civic duty. Like, I think if you're in a position where you can impact folks as you are, man, it's just like, it becomes more than just like some of those early things that we talked about. It's about the betterment of humanity. And I know that sounds big, but it's just like, when you have a position that really can speak to people and better themselves and collectively have a net benefit for our species, I think it becomes very clear what you need to do. Wow. I think to your point of existential threats, there are certainly always reasons to be fearful, but I think equally and more so, there's reasons for hope and we just have to steward that well. But Manu, you have some deep wisdom. I'm honored that you could share it with us. And in all seriousness, I think you're one of the better speakers that I've ever interacted with. So uh, kudos to you for that. And I'm looking forward to following you to building this relationship and I'm excited for what's next for you. So thanks for giving us the time. Andrew, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for this and continue the great work. This is really impactful. Thanks, Manu.